Our objective at the Association of Sporting Directors is to support, develop and connect our members who are spread out across the globe and all bring unique skills and experiences to the role of sporting director. In addition to our in-person events and our online networking sessions, we are really excited to bring you a brand new podcast series covering key topics generated by the membership and central to the future development of the sporting director role. Season one focuses on effective decision-making and is brought to you by Paul Musa, host of the What The Footy podcast series, who spoke to five ASD members, including Mark Cartwright, Zoran Cronetta, Matt Jordan, Greg Broughton and Dan Ashworth. Some fascinating insights from practitioners working at the heart of the professional game. Looking forward to these. Over to you, Paul. Welcome to the SD Podcast. Good to have you here, Ed Rich. How you doing? Really well, thank you. Thanks for having us. All good. Nice. Great Great to have you both here for the for the Season 1 Partner Recap. We're just going to obviously recap on the, on the podcast season so far. One of the questions that we asked all of the guests was, what's the toughest decision that you've had to make in the role and why as our theme for the year was effective decision-making? We heard things like going through a head coach change, an ownership change, navigating the pandemic, deciding whether to give a player a new contract or release them. From your sort of experiences working at City and Bolton, um, Ed and obviously Rich yourself working, working at Swansea within the Premier League, what do you think is the toughest decision that sporting directors have to make? Yeah, I think all, I think all the members really covered it well. Often it is the ones that ha- get the most attention. So it is the the decisions around personnel. Often that's with the head coach and and what they're trying to do. And and then of course then in terms of players and key players and those that are going through different life cycles in terms of where they're at, um, it becomes a really important decision to make and a lot of attention is on it as well so you can understand all of the members talking about you know the pressure that they feel do, making those decisions I'd echo those thoughts um, you know a- any decision that affects humans um, you know people that you might have strong personal relationship with is going to be the hardest right um, you know I think that sometimes professional sport disassociates itself with those kind of emotional humanistic connections so um, you know uh, I think evidently that that's probably the hardest, um, the hardest type of decision that anyone's going to have to make in a in a high profile job. No, for sure, and and even just from the season so far, I've got got some some sort of key themes that I've plucked out as well for yourselves listening to the episodes. What's kind of those kind of one or two three words that that kind of stick out with you from from hearing from the members? Yeah, for me, I think it was that that concept of uh, role clarity like where does the sporting director's role fit within the overarching strategy and vision of the of the business and where that's very clear and we see this in our own work at huddle when that's super super clear it's so much easier to build a, upon that solid foundation um, and i know a number of may you asked the question a really good one about should the role live uh, at a board level um, and i think mark cartwright in particular answered that incredibly well where Again, it depends on that personal relationship. If the relationship with the CEO and the owners is, is really good, then necessarily you don't have to be on the board. But otherwise, sometimes that can be useful to be on there, to be a, a voice. It all depends on how big the board is, how invested people are, where the investors come from, what the vision is for the for the business, for the club, um, and then the person's role in it. So 
Yeah, I think that was a, a critical uh, theme that came out from, from everybody. There needs to be organisational um, clarity, objectives, so that everyone knows that they're pulling in the same direction, that they're fully aligned, um, and that I suppose to a certain extent whether you're operating at the board level or not that you know that there's trust within that organization so that you know uh, whether you're managing up whether you're managing down you feel as though that everyone's sort of um moving in that direct or that direction that that's you know everyone's striving to achieve the organizational goals that there's a there's a sort of common thread um golden thread call it what you want throughout the organization that that, that keeps everyone moving in the right direction yeah, because I think that's a, that was one of the things that really stood out for me because all the different members that I spoke with are working within different models. So Matt Jordan, for example, working within the multi-club ownership model. Uh, Greg, for example, he's working within within a club that's owned, owned and run by a family, similar to, to, to Mark when he was at Stoke there as well. And now obviously working within the league. But what was so clear and apparent from all of them was they had clarity over their roles, not just them having clarity, but at board level owner and ownership level there was clarity there just obviously through, through your times working within uh working within your respective clubs how did you sort of sort of see role clarity within within the role of the sporting director St starting with you rich yeah sure i think um uniquely at swansea uh we had an owner a chairman and a sporting director fulfilling all those kind of roles uh for a long period of time um, and, I, and I think everybody within the organization had clarity that he did fulfill those roles. Um, so it was quite easy for people to get clarity on their own roles and responsibilities because there was a one-stop shop for, for someone who set that, if you like. Um, and I think that, you know, fundamentally, uh, Hugh Jenkins, the person who fulfilled that role, made it very clear for everybody in the organization um how they contributed to the overarching sort of objective of it uh we went through an ownership change some of that clarity perhaps um got lost a little bit and, and i can't comment on the current situation at that club now because i'm not i'm not there but um i i think when the clarity disappears and things become a little bit opaque then you know the the likelihood of people being a little bit maverick or people sort of pulling in opposing directions definitely does increase. And I think football sport per se is kind of littered with examples of where things were, were once very, you know, very joined together and going smoothly and all of a sudden, you know, hit, hit bumps in the road and, and, and gets derailed. And how, and how was that like for you as always? Because obviously working within City Football Group, multi-club model, clubs based across different parts of the world there, how is that sort of set up like around the, the role of sporting director and, and that sort of piece around role clarity? Yeah, I think that the commonality of both the time I spent at, uh, at Bolton, so about eight years and then 11 years at City Football Group, when we were getting the most success, it was linked to the fact that we were very clear on fundamentally how we wanted to play the game. Um, I think that's something you hear a lot from the ASD members as well when you speak to them and meet them. Um, really, where it's very clear about the way that they want to play the game first and foremost and is well understood by uh, and agreed by, by, the, by the board and by the owners and by everybody around uh, the organisation, it's so much easier to build from that foundation and build that clarity. So a very practical uh, thing to implement is really having that clarity about the way you want to play the game. 
Um, and that that was true at Bolton when Mike Ford was the leading the, the, the high performance uh, areas of what we're doing, working very closely with, of course, Big Sam at the time. I think the thing that made that feel different compared to early days at, at City when we were still trying to build things, um, it was that that more connectivity between departments, like very, very, very basic things, which sound basic, but actually still today it isn't very commonly done, where we would have a weekly all-staff meeting, we'd get together and we would go around an agenda from every department, so every single department, analysis, coaching, recruitment, uh, uh, medical, sports science, all would have a voice around a round table. So we set up like a, a big round table and everyone would go through about a, a major updates that have happened in the last seven days and things that are gonna go go on in the next seven days that we need to be mindful of. And then once a month, we'd have an offsite where um, the coaching staff would make sure the, the, the training schedule was adapted so that we could go offsite, we could get together and then future plan for the month ahead and start to think about what we've got, XYZ games coming up and really think and plan that. So again, everyone felt felt on board and um, on, on the same page, and that was the that was my first big job in in uh, in football. And I thought football was like that. I thought that that was all I knew. I thought it was normal. It was only after I left Bolton and started to get bigger experiences at City Football Group where where we started to implement that. But at the start, it was nothing like that. You know, the staff would hardly ever get together and meet. It was literally turn up on match days and. And crack on. So in 2008, when I joined, it you know it was a really big culture shock. Um, by the time I'd left in 2019, it was it was a totally different situation. But at the same time, every if you can imagine, every time we went to work with a new team and acquire a new team, be that through a minority stake or or a majority stake, you'd go through the, the same type of process from the start. You know, going in to initially, and and kind of Matt Jordan talks this as well going in and ensuring people feel comfortable and safe because often they start to feel, oh, well, if someone's coming in as a new owner, I might lose my job. And it becomes a, it becomes a, quite a defensive type situation to walk into. So you've got to be very humble and really try and listen and learn and find out where people are and be on their journey. So I guess the, the point there is that you've got to remember the human beings that are involved in this and you've got to think about um, how do you get the most from them. And for me, what I learned from both of those two organizations, and I see it time and time again now we're working with customers all over the world at Huddle, is where you're very, very clear about the game you want to play, that is such a powerful anchor to build build around. I mean, it's, it's so powerful. Yeah, and I think even linked to that, about the points that you mentioned there about Matt, one of the key things that he mentioned was about strategic alignment. And I think it was a running theme across all the episodes. Um, that that whole idea of of everyone sort of singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, Zoran, Zoran sort of mentioned there how within Charlotte FC, whether that's the commercial or the technical team, they all sit within the same office. It makes it easier for them to make quicker decisions. How do you sort of see that word uh, alignment in action through your daily jobs that you're currently in and previous jobs? Because it's something that everyone talks about, that strives for, but how easy or how difficult is it for it to, to actually come into fruition? S starting with you, Rich. Ed makes a really good point just about his experiences uh, at both Bolton and in the City Group and, you know, how they achieved alignment, I suppose, in their in their day-to-day -day processes and their... Um, you know, their, I suppose, workflows, if you like, and um, whether it's in the, the sporting context, in a football club environment or, or in a tech environment like Ed and I find ourselves in now, um, 
it's it, it's critical that you have that alignment, not just internally, I suppose, um, with your day-to-day processes, with the fact that everybody knows what everybody else is doing and how that's contributing to the bigger picture, but also, you know, how you're, how you're servicing uh, your client base and how that aligns with their needs. So, you know, I think that's, to a certain extent, um, a reflection of where Ed and I find ourselves now. But it, if I'm thinking from a sporting director's perspective, you know, getting everybody pulling in the same direction um, and being aligned to achieving the organisational goals is, is key. But also, you know, is that aligned with the expectations of their clients, the fan base, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, having an awareness of what the expectations are can certainly help you then align and refine, I guess, your your operating procedures, your standard operating procedures, your working processes, call it what you want. Um, and, and I think that's key and fundamental to, to the day-to-day, certainly in my world at Zone 7, and I dare say it's the same for Ed at Huddle, is that, you know, we're, we're all collaborating with this team ethos and, you know, we throw words around like alignment, um, culture, environment, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, you have to work hard to make it a real living thing. Um, you know, it's easy to talk about these things. It's it's sometimes harder to execute them in reality. Ed, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I was just reflecting there, I think, one of the, and you'll, you'll smile at this, Rich, when I say it, one of the things that's uh, quite ironic about football is that football gets in the way of the strategy because it's <laughs> great when you get together and you're in pre-season and you're going through the, you know, what the future's going to be like and all those things. And you know, that's the most energetic time of the of the, of the the entire season. Um, but once those games kick in and the pressure kicks in and the results kick in, you know, that's the ultimate acid test of any any strategy that is in place. And that's where... Uh, and again, the, the members mentioned this in, in all the interviews, pretty much that strong leadership is required and 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 knowing when to, to, to kind of hold hold as it were and, and when the pressure's on you, still stay true to the vision and the and the strategy that you're heading for. I think where those things come apart is where it's quite clear that the strategy has been maybe maybe skimmed over in terms of, okay, we say we've got a strategy and this is what it is. But are you really going into that nth degree to make sure that every single member of your staff, performance staff, commercial staff are on board, they understand, they know where we're going and they're playing their part to it? So I think a, a very practical way of trying to do that is getting the staff involved as part of the process of understanding what your vision and strategy is and then holding people to account to that and then regularly revisiting it. And I think that's the thing that can be very, very difficult in a in that high performance environment once the games kick in and the schedule kicks in because it's so easy just to push that down the line push it back down the line because we're playing in two days time so you've got to that's where the strong leadership part kicks in where you've got to still make time for those things otherwise it's so easy to become disjointed that that that's um a really important and critical piece for a sporting director in that you know they're arguably um, at the core of that for the organization yes the ownership and and the board may set you know the vision the mission and the overarching objectives potentially but uh the sporting director i i guess is often the person that holds a lot of the people that are contributing to that visibly accountable and makes sure that the the, the ship if you like is um you know sailing along with those you know aligned processes to 
uh, achieve your strategy, if you like, um, and, and doesn't deviate based on kind of emotive or, you know, result orientated perspectives that, that, you know, can, can cause turbulence, if you like. So, um, you know, I, I think that the thing that Ed talk about, talked about there about, you know, making sure that you stay true to that it, it is the challenge for the sporting director, for sure. It, it also kind of echoes wider sectors, like both Rich and ourselves in, in our day jobs today with, with Zone 7 and, and Huddle respectively. Um, certainly from a, I don't know, from a huddle perspective, and maybe Rich, you could, you could chip in too. Um, you know, it's, it's very similar. It's, you know, it's setting those clear goals, sticking, sticking to them. But also what I super, super respect about leadership here at Huddle is, and, it, and I found the same at both City at Bolton in, 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 in similar ways, is that the owners and the leadership would set a certain target of where we're trying to get to, but then ask the professionals to say, right, well, how do we get there? Like, you come and present to us, how do we get there? And then have that debate around if, if we're going to miss or we're going to come close or whatever, have that, uh, you know, very open and frank discussion about well, what it is that we need to do. And then also, I think more importantly, is having the ability to invest. So where, we, where you make a clear case around, OK, we need to invest in X, Y, Z to get us to this part in terms of our journey, in terms of where the leaders want us to be. Um, having that ability to go to and you know, I found that you know, really fortunate here at Huddle is that that's definitely the culture here. Um, and, it's, and it's been great even through the through the pandemic the business has been very supportive of everybody and tried to uh, maintain our, our vision and our strategy despite you know what was you know what's been going on in the world no that's super useful and just sort of going back to one of the points that you mentioned there Ed around team I think one of the key things that came out from this podcast series was was the whole idea about team and trust and I think a lot of the sporting directors were, were sort of open and, and the members in that they can't do it alone and they need the support and the trust of their team in order to help and support that process and support the decisions that are made as well and really be able to spot those knowledge gaps. I think Zoran spoke about having Bobby Belair there as his director of salary caps and supporting him in, in those decisions there because even speaking to Zoran there, the, the rules and regulations around the MLS are so convoluted oh, as well. So, it is. Yes. so just in terms of yourselves as well, how do you see that thing around the team? Because obviously both of yourselves worked in the performance uh, side of it within clubs. And how did you sort of see that team structure for you guys? I think the what I found from the, the strongest leaders um, in those environments that I've worked in is that they wanted to make the effort to get to know people individually, whether they recruited them or not, get to know the people you're working with first and foremost. Okay, the strategy, the vision is important, but... Let's also understand about the people there, because if you want to truly build trust, you need to know um, people personally on a personal level. So uh, an example of that we did at City, we called it the City Code. Um, and we basically had um, a period of time where we sat down and collected information about all staff from people working in the kitchen, the cleaners, people uh, looking after the kit, people um, all the medical sports science team, the analysis, all the departments, recruitment and basically just captured you know who they were who their families were who the kids were when the birthdays were um what their aspirations are for the future what ideas they've got and um, where do they want to develop professionally all these kind of areas coming together and then boiling it down as well to you know give us three things that you like and three things that you dislike so quite commonly it was i want to be treated with respect i want to be communicated with you know those types of things came out really commonly across it and we were able to present that back to all the staff members and say, this is your voice, this is what you're saying. 
And this is how we will build trust. Um, and it, it was in 2009, 10, when we did that. So it's really foundational at a time where the club was going through a lot of turmoil and change still. Um, and it was one of the components that just helps us settle things down and, and build those stronger relationships. And then when you start to recruit people into that, you've got this foundation to go from like, here's the city code. This is the people you'll be working with, you know, get to know them, spend some time. And it's just incredible that the just the additional levels of conversation that start to happen, you know, over lunch and over breakfast and things like that, that maybe would not have happened had we not done a project like that. Um, so when I came to Huddle, we did a very similar thing. I, I joined and um, and I, uh, all this, the team I'm, that I'm managing uh, work remotely. So we work in different uh, areas around the world, quite a unique challenge. So there's the first thing that I did is is, is is get that same process in in place with the uh, with the staff that I now manage today, and we use that as a way of connecting, understanding, you know, knowing where everyone's uh, 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 kids' uh, birthdays are in our diaries and stuff, so we can you know send presents or send messages or whatever that might be. Uh, just again, just to connect on that human level, because I think that makes the difference when you talk about the theme of building trust. I think trust comes from a very human understanding and of empathy that you can build upon. And it can't just be expected. You know, we mentioned it earlier on about the humanistic side being really important. And I think that, you know, if you break bread, either, you know, together in person or, you know, digitally, virtually um, in various corners of the world, then, you know, you end up building strong bonds and strong relationships, which inevitably build trust right um you know sim similar to ed and at huddle um, you know whenever we onboard anyone new at zone seven the first thing they do is articulate to the global team who they are what they're about you know any important personal relationships they've got kids pets whatever so that people feel like they know them uh, and can start to build that that bond um and, and similarly in the you know the sporting context right you're, you're in a club you know people people have teammates whether that's you know footballer on pitch teammates or whether that's you know staff and colleagues off off pitch but effectively your teammates right so you need to rely on each other for effective outcomes and um you know building that trust is is a key fundamental part and um, you know you can only do that again by by creating sort of good kinship and and sense of belonging and, and good bonds etc cetera, etc cetera. so um absolutely critical but one of the things that you know i think that's been really important to me and um the people i've worked with and, and the people i've managed over the years i think is is the acceptance that we can be you know um i guess visibly accountable to each other and communicate with candor and that it's you know all right to disagree and it's okay to have different perspectives and you know say things without it being personal um, because it's all about achieving you know the outcome that we're all striving to achieve um so i think if you can set that out early whether it's through a you know a written team charter that you all contribute to or because the foundations have been laid like ed was saying that they did at the city group is, is a fundamental layer of trust building that that ultimately would contribute to success and, and minimize the chances of it being disrupted by you know an outlier because i think if someone comes into that environment and doesn't buy in it's very obvious very quickly um so you know uh it, it's an interesting topic and there, there's you know so many layers to it right it's multifactorial but you know i think the stuff that that 
Ed pointed out, and hopefully the the comments that were made then around um, you know, sort of visible accountability and and communicating with candor, um, you know, are all factors in, in how you might go about doing that. And um, it's relevant for us in tech companies as much as it's relevant for sporting directors in you know, in leadership roles in their sport organisations. Spot on. No, that's super useful. Thanks, Richard. One of the questions that we that we asked all the members at the end of the episode was, if they could go back and give themselves advice when they first started, what would they go and tell themselves to make them better decision makers? We heard stuff like having a bit more patience. Um, we heard stuff like look at the bigger picture. Uh, we heard stuff like don't be in a rush to get to where you, where you want to get to because that journey, the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations will all help and support you to become a more effective decision maker. What advice would you have for yourself if you were to go back in terms of improving your decision making processes or having looked at those around you, how they've they've become good, effective decision makers? Really, really good question. Um, I thought a little bit about this one because when you said it in the interview, I was like, that's that's a really great question. Um, I think for, for me personally, it would be um, taking time, even if you're early in your career, to think about and understand why your organization exists in the first place. Like what is the owner's aspirations, ambitions? Why does that person or persons own the, the club in the first place? I think when you go in as a, as a practitioner, like I did initially working in performance analysis, I just was, wasn't even on my mind that, that I needed to understand that. It's only much later in life as you go through, you know, trials and tribulations, ups and downs and things. When you understand the why of why your organization uh, exists in the first place, it makes it so much easier for you to get your head around how you can have an impact. And then the second one would be play your role in, in trying to make sure people are clear on on what the game model is that you're trying to play. So I'm, I'm sorry, obviously from a, from a sports perspective here, understand the game you want to play first and foremost and make sure everybody knows what that means in terms of the overarching principles you're trying to achieve on the field, but also then the play specific elements of that across all the major areas. So in a, in a, in a coaching context, you'd probably call that a four corner model, wouldn't you? Your tactical, technical, physical and psych, you know, those things, what, what do they mean? And is everybody super clear on that? And how do you play your role in it? Of course, when you're young and you're starting a career, it's, you're not going to know that stuff straight off the bat, but take time to learn those things. So if you get those two things really well, the why your organization exists and how you play your part in making sure people are very clear and you're very clear on the game you're trying to play, the rest becomes so much more easy. To you know, I think if I could go back and, and sort of reinforce and teach myself something from the get-go, it would be that make sure you as an individual understand how your contribution is valued and, and, and important to the overarching objective of the organization, but also your colleagues, so that um, you know everyone has clarity on the value of what they're doing. Um, and that actually in parallel with that, if something is identified as needing to be evolved, changed, call it what you want, um, that it's very clear as to why and, and what effect that change will have so that you know people don't feel as though it's a personal um, issue and, and, and that the change is actually for the greater good. So it, it, it would be absolutely around that sort of clarity piece um but you know aligned with that there's loads loads of sub things like you know communication etc cetera, etc cetera. so um I, I think that would be the main thing for me um 
I suppose a second learning really would be if you're going to change something, you know, um, don't go in there and do it too quick. Make sure that you assess the landscape, um, you know, and if you do need to make that change, then you do it sort of um, segmentally rather than just come in with a broad brush and, and sweep things aside because, you know, you're like you're likely to cause turbulence if you do that. No, super useful. Just going going into the final question, starting with you first, Rich. How does Zone Seven make sporting directors effective decision makers? From a Zone Seven perspective, is that we service a branch of the sporting organisation that I would say historically Zone um, Sporting Directors are perhaps a little less comfortable in. The performance and medical branch is one where. Um, you have regulated professional disciplines that that, that typically, um, I guess, fall under sporting directors, but a little maybe left a little bit to their own devices to a certain extent because they're professionally regulated. And and Zone Seven, I argue, gives sporting directors an insight into that branch of how well those people are performing in their roles um, objectively, um, as well as giving you know these highly qualified professionals uh you know a sharp tool to to fulfill the remit of what they're doing so um hopefully you know we give sporting directors a, a way to hold people i suppose visibly accountable in a non-threatening way um whilst at the same time you know being a useful tool for for the end user no that's useful and ed how does huddle help sporting directors to be effective decision makers well i guess First of all, I'm really uh, pleased and honoured to be one of 4,000 employees that Huddle has worldwide in 19 different countries around the world. And we have um, at any one time 180,000 teams at a various different levels using our, our solutions one way or another, um, which means around 4 million people every every day are using using some kind of Huddle product, which is, in, is incredible. That gives us an amazing perspective on what is going on in terms of high performance. Um, and through our through our investments, I think it's the commitment to supporting leaders of sports organisations, including sporting directors. And more specifically to your question, I think um, as most of the members mentioned, uh, in particular areas like recruitment are in, are important uh, for the role, and often are the area that they will be judged on the most. You know what recruitment is made in terms of uh, staff, but also in terms of players. Uh, and we've got tools like uh, Y Scout, uh, one of the world's largest databases of video and, and data content that is available to help those processes. So uh, increasingly now it's about uh, how do you use data and evidence in a more meaningful way to speed up the process of recruitment uh, and hopefully get to a place where you're making uh, smarter decisions uh, or at least making calculated decisions in terms of those, those are key recruitment places. And then of course that goes into then the rest of the high performance workflows across of uh, uh, team performance, so coaching and, and analysis. And then more recently with our acquisition of RealTrack and, and Wimu, the movement into human performance as well. So we look forward to working with people like Rich and Zone 7 and uh, doing it even more together. So I think it, that's a, a great future ahead for, for both companies. No, that's amazing. Ed, Rich, thank you for your time. We're really pleased at the ASD to be having great partners like yourselves in Zone 7 and Huddle. Thank you for contributing to the season one recap and uh, speak soon. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it.
it's Andy from Zone 7. In the time it takes to read out this ad, our proprietary AI could have analyzed your training and game data, informed you which of your players were at increased risk of injury, and suggested how your staff could reduce that risk by simulating optimal workload strategies for the week ahead. If you want to find out more about how it does this, visit zone7.ai and click request a demo to start up a conversation. Now, back to the episode. 